0: This podcast is intended for UK and Ireland healthcare professionals only. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Series 2 and Episode 4 of the Interstitial Lung Disease Academy Spotlight Podcasts, brought to you by Boehringer Ingelheim. Featuring prominent members of the UK and Ireland ILD community, these podcasts hope to shine a spotlight on the great work being done around the country and break down some of the challenges facing us in delivering excellent care to our patients. My name is Dr Anne-Marie Russell, a clinical academic at the University of Exeter Respiratory Institute and Royal Devon University NHS Foundation Trust. I have a special interest in patient-reported measures and outcomes in interstitial lung disease and patient-centred approaches. Joining me on today's episode is Dr. Michael Gibbons, who is the Clinical Director for the Southwest Peninsula Interstitial Lung Disease Service and Respiratory Consultant at Royal Devon University Healthcare NHS Trust. He is also an Honorary Associate Professor at the University of Exeter and a Principal Investigator for a number of studies, including those relating to interstitial lung diseases. Welcome Michael.
1: Good morning Anne-Marie.
0: So I wonder Michael if I could um, start by um, asking you a little bit about you and your cur- current diverse portfolio of clinical practice, clinical leadership and research.
1: Thanks Anne-Marie. So, so first and foremost I'm a consultant respiratory uh, physician um, so I um Trained in respiratory medicine, but my, my my strong focus is in interstitial lung disease. That's what I spend most of my practice. Um, so, linked to that, I'm the clinical director of the Southwest Peninsula Interstitial Lung Disease um, Network. So, that serves um, the peninsula of the southwest, but also extends into to Somerset and into parts of Dorset. So, I, so I lead that with 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 the team. Um, it's a very um, it's a diverse team. And we we, we make sure that all members of that team, be it physios, pharmacists, nurses, fellows um, are actively involved in that team. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that in a bit more detail today. Um, I'm also the clinical director of the uh, Clinical Research Network within the Southwest Peninsula. So that's the NIHR uh, delivery arm. Um, And um, so I oversee all clinical trials and clinical research studies um, for, for all specialty areas and um, for, for our region. Um, and then I um, I have an honorary contract within within the University of Exeter, and that's linked to, to my work or, uh, mainly in interstitial lung disease. Um, so I have a fairly diverse portfolio. So I'm interested in all aspects of interstitial lung disease from right back to, to the bench. So genetics and molecular and cellular biology. And then increasingly uh, recently more into the, the more translational aspects patient center care drug interventions and how we can really develop interstitial lung disease at many levels uh, and then I, I you know at the end of that spectrum i also am a pi in clinical trials and um, um a member of a variety of consortia where we're trying to develop new therapies so investigator initiated studies clinical trials in interstitial lung disease
0: yeah so uh, an an incredibly rich portfolio and and diverse but i i think probably quite valuable in bringing together those worlds of of clinical research and patient care and and having oversight of that at a regional level and I suppose that leads in quite nicely, thinking about that holistic view, um, is I, I know that you have a commitment to delivering holistic approaches to the management of patients um, uh, in your clinical service. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that, Michael, and how that works.
1: Yeah, so I think it really goes back, probably, Anne-Marie, to when, when I first was appointed as a, as a consultant, Um in and, and interstitial lung disease and, and at that point there were no anti-fibrotic medications around and, and the care of patients with interstitial lung disease was, was, was very poor um, and remains um, in need of, of improvement. So I've got a strong focus on, on, the, on the patient um, aspect. So back, back then um, I reached out and worked very closely with the British Lung Foundation at that time, who we were only charity, really about trying to push the, the patient agenda. Uh, And and then what came out of that was that we set up one of the first support groups um, for pulmonary fibrosis um, in in Exeter, which has now become a regional um, group linked to action pulmonary fibrosis um, directly. So working with patients and with charities, I think what that um, really educated me in was, was there was a real need to make this a holistic approach to how we manage our patients. So actively working with uh, our patients in partnership to to drive the needs of that patient cohort group and then to link in with, with the various stakeholders to, to make that happen. Um, so that's been a, a long journey, um, an endeavour um, of mine. Um and as we go along, we, we know we are we constantly working with the patients to, to refine um what they need and then trying to implement that into um NHS structures.
0: Uh, and you mentioned before the the sort of um commitment to 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 person centred care and, and I guess within that um strategies to optimize holistic care have to be offset against um, actually managing the the throughput of patients, which is steadily increasing. And and I guess balancing that with the cost effectiveness of the care we we deliver as well. So I I wonder, Michael, if you could maybe tell us um, ways in which you're working to Achieve this and, and sort of strike that balance between good holistic patient care uh, that that is cost effectiveness and and I guess that to some extent might um, tap into your leadership roles as well.
1: Yeah, so thanks, Henry. So uh, so we I mean the, the, this all started with with the, with a doctor nurse relationship. So the, the ILD consultant and the ILD nurse specialist, um, and then as time's going to go on we, has gone on, we've expanded um, that. So what's become um, apparent to me, I think, is that it's, it's a need to have an ILD pharmacist linked as part of that team um, where you have instant access to that experience of, of drugs and side effects um, that can really, really enhance the, the experience and education for the patients. Um, we do have within our team, um, ILD nurse specialists who um, have or non-medical prescribers who work with the pharmacists. So that works um, in close harmony. Um, but many centres might not have no specialists with that expertise. I think a pharmacist is an invaluable addition to, to the team. And within our clinic, we have pharmacists that um, participate in meeting meeting our patients. And then the other aspect um, is, is physiotherapy um, in terms of um, symptom management. They bring a wealth of experience and, and time um, which they can use to to good effect to to support that education um, of the patients and then enable follow-up. And having these members within the team is good for for everybody. It's good for the patient first and foremost. It's good for the development of the pharmacists, the physios, the the nurses. Um, And really, really expands, I feel like it expands, the reach of interstitial lung disease through all the healthcare professional groups, which is important for patients fundamentally because you have more interested healthcare professionals, which then feeds back into to patient care. Um, I think it's probably important to, me- to to mention the admin members of the team as well. So we have um, an ILD coordinator um, who's soon to become uh, our ILD manager, um, and, and she has a role um, in working with our patients, be that through the patient support group that we have within the region, um, or in actually being the first port of call to contact these patients who may be waiting to see us to put put their fears at ease, to send them advanced information so that they know what's going on because there's nothing worse than waiting to be seen at a hospital appointment and having no information of when that might be. So following feedback from patients and part of our learning will really, really change the service that's to meet all of the aspects of the patient's needs Right along that pathway, so even from the point where they've not seen us to where they have come to see and then, us and then after that. Um, and then ov- obviously, you know, money is important within the, NA- the NHS um, and there are um, cost savings potentially. Um, by, by involving these healthcare professionals, it, it means that we can increase the throughput of patients being seen because they might need to spend less time with a consultant. So, the traditional model, you know, what I used to do many years ago was have to go through all of these aspects myself in a consultation, which was quite rushed. Um, but now, having all of these strands within the team, we can enhance the patient experience. But actually, it means that you reduce consultant time um, and therefore save money and get more patients through the system with an enhanced experience.
0: Uh, I mean, that sounds fantastic. And I I think uh, picking up on your point, you know, communication is key and and, and often patients can have excellent care at the point of presentation. But if that communication doesn't happen in a timely manner, pre and post appointment, it it leads to a lot lot of stress. So that that sounds like a fantastic role and and something other uh, people in other centres listening to this podcast would be keen to emulate. So it sounds like a, a really um, diverse team. And I'm, I'm just wondering, a bit of a cheeky question, really, is um, <laughs> who you think might be missing from that team and, and in an ideal world, who, you, who else you, you might want to bring in?
1: I mean, so what I haven't mentioned that actually does come to the, to the clinic is the members of the research team. Um, so uh, we have researchers come and they kind of they like to be there they like the patient to see to meet the patients and to to explain the, the the study to them so we have active members of the the research team um we also have then other healthcare professionals so within the clinical research facility um the 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 members of their team come down what I'd really like to have um would be would would be a dietitian i think a dietitian would almost certainly add value. Um, to those consultations. We have experimented over the years as to how we might um, support the mental health component of those clinics, be that through psychology support or um, psychiatry support or through um, psychiatric liaison nursing team support and I think that's an area probably in need of development because the needs of the patients are different at different points in the journey, and at the first consultation, it might be too much to have um, members of the psychiatric team there. But but I'm o- I'm open to exploring that. I think di- dietetic members certainly are important to have there. Um, I'd love to have members of the clinical trials team is there as well to talk about the clinical trials. Um, but I think what what we're learning, um, Anne Marie, um, is as you know, is that. There is a balance between having all members of healthcare professionals that you think the patient needs, with overloading the patient. Um, so this is this is an evolution and in, 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 in our journey working with 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 our with our patients. So I think there comes a balance between having everybody that you think they need to help them, and then maybe phasing that over a period of time, and we're still working our way through that.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, fantastic. We'll we'll sort of watch this space as 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 that develops, and I suppose that leads in quite nicely to think about um, uh, that interdisciplinary team in, in involvement. I, I think the multidisciplinary team model is very well established in interstitial lung disease, focused around diagnosis, and and and, and absolutely there is a place for that interdisciplinary team, but it, it is evolving. And, and maybe part of that is is thinking about um, supporting patients to self-manage uh, and the pandemic has taught us perhaps more than anything that it's good to keep patients at home and, a, and away from a hospital setting if we can. So I wonder if you could um, tell us about how you might be integrating some of those supported self-management approaches um, to, to to patient care and what the benefits of that might be.
1: Yeah, so, so um, um, we've got a, an excellent member of our self-supporting management group, um, yourself, who leads <laughs> on that. So it's important to have a, a, an international leader. Um, it's important to have someone within the team who has a, a, a real interest and hunger to take that forward, which we have locally, which is which is fantastic. Um, and, and then listening to the patients and um, linking with, with new technologies as they come through is is important. So we, we, we did, you know, we, we used variety of techniques for patients during the pandemic and what we learned was that actually um, every patient's different and every patient's needs and requests are slightly different. But what would be useful would be to have a suite of opportunities for the patient. One of the opportunities which we are um, working very uh, hard to uh, to d- develop is, the, is home spirometry. Um, and uh, as you know um, home spirometry feels like something that the patients um, would want um, it's not for everyone we'll be learning that people, many people like to many patients can't like to come in have regular contact um, and see their the consultant and and their, and their nurse specialist and other members of the team but some patients are very happy to 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 monitor their condition with home spirometry and the potential benefits to that as you as you've alluded to are that patients can be at home, so they don't have to come to hospital on a regular basis. Um, what that also allows is it can it reduces the need to come to a hospital, find parking space, and um, all the costs that that incurs. Um, it helps with the carbon footprint because there's less travel um, for patients, and reduces the kind of stress of coming to a hospital consultation. And from the NHS's perspective, if you have less visits per patient then that that reduces if you like the number of consultations. So we're moving within that area of home spirometry into inpatient patient initiated follow-up where we can be responsive to the needs of patients rather than relying on on the traditional model where you see them at a four month or six month interval and nothing happens in between and you find that you've lost a couple of months because the patient didn't tell you there was a problem or they've tried to get into the system and couldn't get in. So we're moving very much to this um, patient-initiated follow-up and we're starting using home spirometry as our first technological advance but I'm sure as time goes on that that suite of technology will evolve and there'll be many more opportunities for patients to to, to self-manage through a variety of ways Um, and then we will develop the service uh, as need be
0: and I'm guessing that's really important in the Southwest peninsula because it's um it, it's a it's a huge region and there's um i guess a lot of rural communities that may struggle with some of the transport infrastructure um I, so i i I just wondered um how that works across a diverse region and whether you think this approach is translatable to other areas in the u k
1: oh absolutely. What we're finding is that patients like the idea. They need to have a, a smartphone um, or we give them a, um, an iPad if they don't, if they don't have one. Um, but there's certainly an opportunity for that. You know, we, we've, we all have patients in, in the UK where we may have patients are two and a half hours away um, from the specialist centre. Um, and to have the ability to remotely monitoring them, to, to have the ability to remotely connect with them, to, to talk to them. Um, In many ways, that should increase the efficiency of the ability to see patients because if you just have a lot of patients being seen on a regular basis, the flexibility in which you can respond to patients' needs gets diluted. So this will definitely help with that and it will expand our reach, as you say, so that we can provide access to the patients we need in a geographically dispersed area with enhanced efficiency.
0: Um, and in terms of of having access to the specific devices, is that available for all patients, Michael? Or um, do patients have to buy any of these devices themselves?
1: So the the home spirometry, um, they they can they could purchase that themselves. Um, we we are currently um, working in, in partnership with a company, um, and we have funding from NHSX, so the patients aren't paying for the home spirometers. Currently, um the prices are coming down considerably as time evolves. They do need to have a, a smartphone um in the majority, but for patients that don't have smartphones we do have a you know limited number of iPads um or or tablets or devices that can link into that. So we're trying to do it in a way that the where the patients don't have to, to pay. But you know what I'm finding um increasingly is that there are patients that actually want to be more in control of their health and uh, they would rather purchase the devices themselves um, and choose whatever they want, as long as the technology enables that. So again, you know, we sometimes we may assume that we should be providing everything for the patients for free, but actually some patients would prefer the choice of having their own device so they can link that to other aspects of of their life um, of which health is just one component
0: yeah yeah no that makes sense, and I think certainly attitudes to um, technology have probably changed over the last couple of years for all of us <laughs> we've used to yes. we used to communicating in in different ways and so i'm I'm thinking that with this um patient initiated follow up model of care, do you think that the interdisciplinary team are essential to make that work um, and in terms of a burden of contact. Do you have a feel for whether um, how different that is to a traditional approach?
1: So, absolutely, Anne Marie. I, th- I think um, the interdisciplinary um, approach is is the way forward. Um, to to make that work, you need to have an interdisciplinary team which works together, which is cohesive, um, and as time goes on to, to build the skill set and confidence within that interdisciplinary team. Uh, what we're about to introduce into our, our ILD team is, is, a, is, a, is a Band 4 um, healthcare practitioner who will be um, clinically trained. Um, so they will be able to have a patient-facing role with clinical training, which will offset the need for patients to be seen by, by the consultant by the nurse specialist or by the pharmacist. So in many ways, it's a first port of call within within that journey and as long as they have knowledge to put the patients at ease and to escalate appropriately, then um, the, the, we've always got to be careful that the patient doesn't feel they are being fobbed off by someone who's triaging them and we've got to make sure that the, the, the initial point of contact is by someone who is is supportive and can deal with their needs and then feed it through the interdisciplinary team as needed. And I think having that ladder of access allows for more patients to have the opportunity to link with us rather than the traditional model where patient phones nurse specialists and then nurse specialists may, or may not need to speak to the consultant. We have patient comes into the system and then it can be directed to the pharmacist, to the nurse specialist, to the physio, to the consultant, to the dietitian. To the research team, to the psychiatry and mental health team, depending upon their specific needs.
0: Yeah, so it's possible to have a much more individualised approach to that patient's pathway of care. Um, absolutely. Um, and I guess so. I guess that leads me on to think about um, uh, other sort of fibrotic lung diseases, perhaps um, uh, as an example, connective tissue disease related. Um, ILDs and and how do you um, how do you manage with across a, a, such a large region um, in terms of cross speciality collaboration? Uh, so, for example, is is it um, is it feasible? Is it possible to engage with rheumatologists uh, for the management of interstitial lung disease patients with pulmonary fibrosis?
1: Yes, ab- absolutely, and. I think the key to all this is is obviously relationship building. Um, so I've been building relationships with my rheumatology colleagues across the region uh, for many years, uh, and that allows me to be responsive to their needs. Um, many of my rheumatology colleagues, um, they, they like the autonomy to manage their patients and to, to ask for help when needed. Some like to work much more in collaboration. Um, so I can provide... Try and support my colleagues um, in a way that is in keeping with what their what their needs are. So I had a an MDT with um, a, a, a group of rheumatologists from South Devon um, earlier this week. because That's the approach they would like. Um, so we can definitely work in partnership with our rheumatology colleagues. Um, I don't think it necessarily needs to be a rheumatology ILD clinic. I think clinicians are of wide spe- have a wide spectrum of interest, expertise. Um, and needs and, and i feel my job is to try and be as responsive to their needs because ultimately that then increases the efficiency in which i can work with them which is better for patient care so it's again it's a moving away slightly from from the traditional model where you have a rheumatologist and a consultant in a clinic because that might not be possible how can we be more responsive so in many ways this is a bit like clinician initiated follow-up um, to support the patient-initiated follow-up.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, fantastic, thank you. Um, and so you mentioned before the importance of integrating uh, research professionals in, in into the clinic or possibly in a different format, so that patients feel connected and, and have the opportunity to uh, participate in, in research. Um, given your um, uh, honorary contract with the university and the, the kind of development of close working relationships between university and, and NHS trusts. Um, are there um, any developments in, in, in the pipeline or anything particular about Exeter and team working that you think is a is a, a model that other people could learn from?
1: Well we the way that we have developed and the we is the whole team is that we, we are very much um, have a, a flat structure. So um, there is not a lead as such. We are all leaders working together. Um, so and that and that you know goes across the, the scientists, the, the and the, the the clinicians and then within the clinicians we have as you know, a whole bunch of people. So we have medics, nurses, we have physiologists, we have some dietitians, um, and some physiotherapists. Uh, and everyone has an equal voice. So I, I, I think that, that we feel that certainly that model is the most productive. It's a collaborative model. It's an everyone has a an equal voice model. And I think that breeds harmony within the group um and it leads to a much more productive, effective and happy group.
0: Yeah. And I have to say, um having come to work with you <laughs> Um, in the, the in the southwest i um i think someone once told me there is no I in team and i, I certainly experienced that i think there that it is it is a a very strong collaborative effort um, and every voice including the patient 's voice is, is heard so it's it is a, um, a a fantastic service and one that continues to evolve um, so so thank you very much michael uh for for your time today and uh we we look forward to looking at the um, evaluations from the Home Spirometry Programme as well. Thank you.
1: It's my great pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity to chat to you today.